Okay, so we did this whole episode on, on learning music. Music is no longer just for listening. We discussed how the way we engage with music is fundamentally changing from something we just listen to to something we create with. It gets us to what I think is a really profound change in, in the role of music. Many more people feel that they can be creative using music today than ever in, in history. We did quite a bit of research into what that profound change is and what exactly is music for. We spoke to record-breaking artists, influencers, musicologists, narratologists, and even the head of music at TikTok. Turns out, hits are not just made by people listening to music on the radio or even on Spotify, but by ordinary people using songs to make videos on platforms like TikTok. And what we found were implications not only for the music industry and what music is, but ultimately for all of us. Music is now material for creation, and it allows us to socialize in new ways. Oh, and if you haven't already listened to the Unlearn Music episode, stop listening now and go listen to that one first. Because this one will be a deep dive. Deep, deep dive. We will go down a few rabbit holes. This is not our usual Unlearn Project episode. It's something extra. An extras episode. There was all this stuff we came across in our research and interviews that just didn't make it into that episode. But we still wanted to share it with you. So we're trying something new. Something a bit different. Because each of us had this one thing, right, that we wished could have made it into the main episode. Something quite cool. Some deep rabbit hole that each of us fell into. Mine went all the way back to Victorian England. Seriously? <laughs> yeah. Mine, mine had computers in it. <laughs> <laughs> of course it did. Of course. <laughs> Oh, and have we mentioned the computer episode? You should listen to that one too, but really, you should listen to the music episode before you listen yeah, to this one. Yeah, did we mention you should listen to the music episode? <laughs> <laughs> Why you're there? And why you're there? Just listen to the whole Just thing. Just listen to the whole thing. <laughs> I'm Sandra Peter. I'm Kai Rima. Welcome to The Unlearn Project. Okay, this is your rabbit hole. Yeah. So one thing that really struck me and never made it into our episode was this idea that historically technology kind of configured music for listening. When we spoke to Ulla Oberman, the global head of music at ByteDance and TikTok, he touched on the role of tech in the history of music. I think this is a, a fascinating look at how culture and entertainment are both created and consumed. It's worth it to just sort of, you know, think about the history of how music has been created and shared with audiences. Due to the mediums that were available and sort of, for lack of a better word, the technology that was available. So we did think about history. We even spoke to Charles Fairchild from the Sydney Conservatorium of Music. I'm Associate Professor of Popular Music at the University of Sydney. My general starting point is 1877 or 76, depending on who you ask, and that's the invention of sound recording. So the first big move is from sheet music to sound recording, that 30-year period in the late 19th, early 20th century. The second is the advent of magnetic tape and the transformation of the recording studio from something that captured sound to something in which sound was manipulated extensively. 
And the third is the transition to digital from the sort of early 90s into the early 2000s, which resulted in the purchasing of digital song files or now streaming music digitally on your phone as a completely normal and straightforward thing to do. And we'll get to that history in a second. Sound recording, gramophone, radio, vinyl, magnetic tape, CDs. But what really struck me is what Charles was saying about what was going on before we had sound recording. Prior to sound recording, obviously, there was sheet music and there was a lively and extraordinarily fascinating and rich culture that surrounded sheet music. People would gather in their parlors around pianos and there were all sorts of uh, you know, social hierarchies and social interactions and protocols and habits that attended even the slightest change in dynamics. And it was often thought that the way you performed a song was a, an expression of your character as a human being. So there's a lot riding on it, especially for young people. Well, that sounds a bit like what people are doing with music today, right? But they're doing it online. Yeah, so if you think of these turn of the 19th century parlors with young men and women who sing and play the piano forte, and then this whole complex social life that unfolds around it. A bit like a scene from a Jane Austen novel. What's the pianoforte? Basically the same instrument, we just call the piano today. Okay, the same, huh? Then why is it called pianoforte? I'm gonna sound really smart now, but I did look this up. And it's just the formal name for the piano. And piano basically is the shorthand for pianoforte. And they're Italian musical terms for soft and loud, piano and forte. So it's the, the soft, loud thing. Yeah, or today, just the soft thing. Okay, piano. And so, as Charles says, there's this entire pride and prejudice, sense and sensibility, music as an expression of your character thing going on, and especially if you're like a young person. But then we get to 1877 or 76, and then it all changes with sound recording. Sound recording was invented in a couple of different places, but it was uh, Thomas Edison, the American inventor, who received the most credit for it. And... Being partially deaf and uninterested in music, largely, Edison saw it as a, a business device, a way to have people send, quote-unquote, letters to one another that were uh, more valid than mere writing. Edison was a great inventor, but a, not a great businessman. And his genuinely crappy wax cylinders, in which bits and pieces of the sound would actually literally fall off, were superseded by Emil Berliner's discs made out of shellac. And Berliner was quite clever in the sense that it wasn't merely a disc, but it was a master disc from which copies could be made. You could make many copies simultaneously from a master disc. And that's a kind of slightly less obvious, but I think no less important turning point, because of course, the immediate thing that allowed was mass reproduction for a mass market. So that to me is the first turning point. All of that took about 30 to 35 years to realize itself. And again, interestingly and different rabbit hole, the invention was not for music per se, but rather as a business device to send letters. And that's even though the oldest surviving recording is of Mary Had a Little Lamb. Mary Had a Little Lamb is frequent quite as slow, and everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. <laughs> Mary had a little lamb open for business. <laughs> There was a great deal of excitement, of course, but also a lot of people were unsettled 
by this because all those protocols and habits and social niceties that went along with music that were thought to be almost literally part of the music turned out they were not part of the music that you could actually just buy the music and listen to it at home without any of those other things necessarily attached to it. So there was some befuddlement about what this new strange real-time technology meant. So sound recording kind of set off the first big unlearn 150 years ago, where music went from this social self-expression thing to something one just listens to. And as Charles was telling the story, it became clear that as each wave of innovation came, it cemented this trend, music as something people passively listen to. The next major turning point was radio. So radio broadcasting it was commercially and publicly available in, I believe it was 1919. A radio station was set up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to broadcast the results of an election. People found it not only better, but more enjoyable to have live music. So radio was almost entirely live for hmm, nearly a decade, maybe, seven or eight years at least. It was only when electric microphones came in and a sort of electric soundboards and ways to manage the sound going into the broadcast that the record industry said, hey, you know, we could actually do that with records. We could have electrical recording, not acoustic recording. And once they did that, it was seemingly inevitable that you could play records on the radio. The playing of records on the radio, while technically possible, the real turning point of that was when it became sort of culturally and socially acceptable. The next major turning point would be the late 1940s when the vinyl album was perfected and vinyl was one of those great space age materials of the new world uh, uh, post-World War II. And the first albums tended to be either European classical music or things like original cast recordings from musicals. But then someone like uh, Frank Sinatra, for example, could do a series of albums with the Nelson Riddle Orchestra, which were regarded as great artistic achievements. So the, the album era from about 1948, really probably to about 1998, really, that's kind of a major trajectory in post-war popular music. So the trend continues. Music becomes something to buy, own, and then listen to. And of course, there were still people singing and playing instruments in their houses and at parties. Yeah, but by and large, the way most people now engaged with music was by buying it and listening to it in their home. And then these successive waves of innovation brought on just better ways to let people listen to more music in more ways at more times. Because perfecting sound forever was the mantra of the music industry for a long time. High fidelity. And when I was a teenager, people would have the perfect sound system at home with that perfect Sheldon Cooper spot on the couch for that perfect listening experience. Yes, people went from listening to radio to listening to albums in their homes. And then listening to Walkman and Disman and iPods, none of that really changed anything. It was still the individual consuming music. So for more or less 150 years, music is something we mainly listen to. But before you tell me about your rabbit hole, there was something else really interesting that Charles mentioned that also happened as a result of this shift. In that move from like Jane Austen's parlor and sheet music to the record industry, something else also got cemented. And so the record industry realized, wow, we can make a lot of money from this. 
if we can just hold on to our publishing rights. So they did that. And this is the kind of central pillar of the contemporary music industry because their ownership of intellectual property is their primary asset beyond anything else because it's more persistent and more valuable than any other asset they have. It's cemented for the music industry that owning rights to recorded music and selling records, or later downloads and streaming, was what it was all about. And for everyone else, it more or less takes social media and video sharing platforms like TikTok to get back to music as something we express ourselves with and we create these rich social experiences around. Yeah, and that is pretty much the topic of our main Unlearn episode, right? Again, if you haven't listened to it. Do it now. Okay, so that was my story. What was your rabbit hole? Well, you know how your story was all about how, over time, technology innovation cemented music as something to record and then sell, buy and listen to? Yes. Well, my story is about just how deeply the industry embraced the understanding of music as their property. So deeply that not even the emergence of hip-hop could unseat it. It's a story of how things almost changed, starting with another technology innovation, computers in the music industry. But then they didn't. It's an almost revolution with sampling and hip-hop, but then the music industry puts its foot down. And you know what? It starts right here in Sydney. I know, because Charles told me about it. The first sampler was the Australian-made Fairlight CMR. If you want to see one, you can go to the Conservatorium of Music. That was the first machine to be able to record, capture, and playback sound digitally, as far as I know, even though there were other machines that sort of mimicked that. They were analog. But did you know that the term sampling itself was also coined here in Sydney? Was it really? Yeah, by the two inventors of the Fairlight CMI. The story of sampling starts right here at Sydney Harbour. Wait a sec, didn't we already do a story on the beginning of electronic music? Ah, uh, you mean Cyrex? Yes, the CSIR Mark I, the first computer in the world to play music. Not good music, just music. <laughs> Wasn't that also invented in Sydney? <laughs> yes, it was. But if you want to listen to that, you need to head over to the Unlearn Computer episode. That's our very first Unlearn episode. So as a matter of fact, the history of computers and music starts here in Sydney Twice, really. The first computer to make music was Cyrek. The first computer to record and manipulate music. Sampling. <laughs> yes, sampling. That was the Fairlight CMI. So, let me take you to Sydney Harbour. The year is 1975. We started off with that idea in the basement of my grandmother's house. And that was on the forefront of Sydney Harbour in Point Piper. <laughs> And uh, my grandmother would make lunch uh, and we had about $300 between us. So that was what it cost to incorporate the company, which was called Fairlight Instruments. Hi, uh, I'm Kim Ryrie. I'm Managing Director of DEX, Proprietor Limited. And I'm the co-founder of the original Fairlight Instruments in 1975 with Peter Vogel. So Kim was running Electronics Today International at the time, a magazine for electronics enthusiasts. And they would often do these little projects for their readers. And one of those was to build a machine that creates synthetic sounds, a synthesizer. I'll bring up Peter Vogel, my school friend. We used to design stuff at school together with no money. And since we had no money, I thought he'd be the perfect guy to talk to. 
And I said, what are you doing? And he said, oh, not much. What are you doing? And I said, oh, not much. Um, do you want to build the world's greatest synthesizer? He said, oh, yeah, How, how's that going to work? And I said, well, we're going to use these new microprocessor things that have just come out. So analog synthesizers already existed, right? But Kim and Peter wanted to build a machine where the manipulation of sound could be programmed, automated, so to speak, with a computer. And did they? Yeah, they did, but the sound sounded really sterile. They were really not happy with what they got. So one day, Peter recorded this short piece of piano music off the radio because he wanted to study how the harmonics of real instruments sound when they replicate it in the synthesizer. And that's really when he invented sampling by accident. Like a lot of stuff in human history. Yeah, Peter discovered that when he played back that piano recording and modulated its pitch and, you know, played it like an instrument, it sounded much warmer and more realistic than any of the synthesized sounds that they were creating. And so music sampling was born? Yeah. So rather than creating these synthetic sounds, it became clear that the way to go was to record these short snippets of real instruments and then manipulate those so you could actually play them like real instruments. So unlearned synthesizer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But that's really how the first music sampler was invented. Is that when the term sampling was coined? Yeah, Kim and Peter pretty much made it up right here in Sydney. And more importantly, they turned their machine into a product. It became the Fairlight CMI, the Computer Musical Instrument. And shame this is a podcast. Why? What did it look like? Well, it's this really cool cross between a computer and a music keyboard and a monitor. And this new kind of graphical sound visualization. I mean, this was before PCs were a thing, right? They didn't have a mouse, so they had to come up with this pen that you can use to manipulate the sound waves on this monitors. It was really cool. I mean, it was super innovative. And it took off right when computer technology became more affordable. At about this time, the 16K bit memory chip had just been announced. And We sort of couldn't believe it. This was just this huge amount of memory, 16 kilobits in a chip. That's really not very much though, is it? <laughs> well, not by today's standards. No, it's really not much. But it was just enough for them to record and play back short two-second sound clips and to create a machine that could be fed these recordings to become a very versatile instrument. So... We sold the uh, the machine for about twenty five thousand US dollars back in nineteen seventy nine, and since it was the first sampler, we were getting lots of interest from anyone that could afford it, which tended to be well known pop stars and people like that. Peter Gabriel in the UK, we were introduced to Geordie Hall Mill in Los Angeles, who owned the Village Recorder Studio, and at the time. They were recording the Fleetwood Mac Tusk album and we just brought the machine in and everyone was just pulling out their checkbooks and writing checks for $25,000. And Stevie Wonder bought the next one, Carly Simon, Kate Bush in the UK. Yeah, it became very popular. And some of these musicians really embraced it and they would create lots of recordings for it and they would share these sounds with each other. The original Fairlights didn't have a big sound library. Pretty much the people that owned Fairlights would often donate the sounds that they'd done. Peter Gabriel in particular was very generous. He'd go wandering through junkyards with a Nagra tape recorder around his neck, you know, smashing TV sets. 
and then he'd let us put them in the, the library that we distributed. So uh, he was very generous. A lot of people were very generous in those days. One of the famous samples was Orc 5, Orchestra 5, and that was, I think that was the opening bar from the Firebird Suite, Stravinsky's Firebird Suite. So that became very popular. It was very short, you know, it was just, you know, half a second or a second or something. But that was used in a lot of things. Yeah, and then commercial companies would jump on the bandwagon and create libraries of sound samples and start selling those to Fairlight users. So sampling kind of became a new art form. Well, yes, but initially only for some well-off artists and producers. But eventually sampling and the Fairlight would meet with hip-hop, right, which was just emerging in New York at the time. And a few years later, sampling as an art form would really take off and recorded music would be used as this creative material. What's interesting, though, is that Kim, like many inventors, did not envision that his product would be used in that way. What we never thought of was the way it's been used to sample other people's music. <laughs> we always thought it would just be used for sampling organic sounds and trying to make them musical or playing natural sounds at different pitches to get different effects. I mean, there had been earlier attempts to use recorded music as creative material, right? Like chopping up magnetic tape and piecing it back together or layer it on top of each other. The Beatles famously had a go, right? Yeah, but the Fairlight really was different. It allowed recorded sounds to be manipulated in all sorts of creative ways without access to, you know, huge sound studios. But this thing was still like super expensive, right? For the hip-hop community, it wasn't affordable when it came out. Yeah, that's right. Initially, at least. Yeah, I would have loved to use it. It was way too expensive for us. <laughs> yeah, I know who that is. That is very cool, <laughs> Hank Shockley. We had him in the Unlearn Music episode. That's him. My name is Hank Shockley. I'm a producer, sound engineer, sound designer. Yeah, not just any producer and sound engineer, as Megan, our sound editor, would tell everyone, but a founding member of hip-hop band Public Enemy and the production outfit, The Bomb Squad. As well as a rock and roll Hall of Fame and Grammy Hall of Fame inductee. Yeah, and Hank did a great interview with Megan and talked about how hip-hop emerged, how initially musicians would use turntables to manipulate records live with people rapping over the top of it. The early days of hip-hop, it was just a feeling. It was just an excitement that was going on. And, uh, you know, none of us knew that it would become an industry or it would be a part of an industry. It was more of a love for the energy of what we were doing than it was anything else. And hip-hop fully embraced recorded music as material for making sounds and making new music. Yeah, music felt very new. It was new. We knew it was new. Because most of us have been record collectors, record enthusiasts. A lot of us are fans of music. Most of the music that we were listening to before were made by artists that sang. You know, and this was the first time when instead of us listening to other artists, we can listen to ourselves, you know, rhyme and rap on top of the records. You know, sampling came from the turntable itself. Before we got into the sampling, we would take a break of a record, have a duplicate, 
and mix it back between turntable one and turntable two. And that right there created the backdrop or the backbeat, if you would, of the musical bed that we was going to create. Now, when you add a live rapper on top of it, it becomes a performance piece. But even so, back then, in the end, ultimately nothing really changed. <laughs> Not really, because the music industry had other ideas. As your story made clear, they had cemented this idea of recorded music as a product, right, to be sold and consumed. And that idea clashed fundamentally with what hip-hop artists were doing. When hip-hop took off and grew in popularity, the music labels intervened. And Charles was stressing that too, right, when he was talking about the history of music. So on the one hand, you have a music industry very jealous of its property and how it's used. On the other hand, you have artists routinely making use of that property in new and different ways in nightclubs and loft parties and street corners. But it only became a problem when it reached a mass audience and became something that was really high profile. So with hip hop, what you start getting in the late 80s, early 90s is, you know, routine million selling albums or extremely high profile concert tours or music videos or live performances. And that's when the music industry started to clamp down. That's when you start getting, not only do you get lawsuits against people misusing this material, and arguably you could make a good case that this is not misusing the material, that this is actually using it as intended. The music industry was extremely aggressive and extremely successful in their ability to bend copyright law to its wishes. So almost unlearned music. Yeah, almost, because the music industry protected their idea of recorded music as a product, as something to just be sold and consumed. And then kind of like it hindered our style because of all the lawsuits that was happening. And so now it became cost prohibited to be able to, to clear your samples when you have a lot of samples in a space, because it's just too much money to be able to pay out everybody was more than the amount of money that we were actually making off the record. Sampling is an art form that is have deemed itself basically for the elites. If you can afford to pay the, the exorbitant fees in order to you know, clear a sample, then you could get away with using it. But you can only get away with maybe one or two samples. You know, if you look at the early Public Enemy records, those records, you know, would have like 30 samples in it. You know, one song at a minimum of 30 samples. That's what created our demise, so to speak. It was the beginning of our demise because we couldn't utilize the art form to its fullest. So back then, the music industry intervened and it put a real damper on this new creative use of music as a material for making new music and also on hip hop as a creative art form for everyone. And again, Charles was making that point. So the relationship between copyright and inventive use and reuse of materials is kind of a perennial in the music industry in the era of sound recording. And they only seem to become a problem when someone else seems to be making a lot of money from what the music industry perceives as the misuse of their property. It was only when DJs and hip hop artists began being able to sell music clearly based on pre-existing sounds, that's when it became a problem. And not just sell it, but sell a lot of it. And that is what's different today with TikTok. 
Exactly. Now the music industry has come on board because creators on these platforms are not making new music to be sold for profit. In fact, they're helping the music industry by promoting their products for free. Yeah, and interestingly, the initial reflex of the music industry was, you know, as always, to be against the free use of their music on TikTok. But once they saw how songs can go viral, right, how it can make hits, they really embraced the idea of music as material. And today they list their music catalogs on TikTok. They even promote the use of their songs by creators in their videos. Because that then gets their music in front of huge audiences who then start listening to it on streaming platforms, which gets hits bumped up in the charts. And that's where the real money is for the music industry. Which is the topic of our main music episode. So we've re-emerged from the rabbit hole. We did. Um, I was worried there for a bit, you know, computers and all. (laughs) But it was totally worthwhile to hear from your story of how it all started with the social idea of music and how music became a product to be sold and consumed. And in my story, how this almost changed with sampling and hip hop, but then the music industry put their foot down. So we should do one of these once in a while, an additional episode, a deep dive to explore the rich background of some of our topics. But next time, back to our regular Unlearn episodes. This was the Unlearn Project. Our sound editor was Megan. It's much better when I tell it, Wedge. And this episode and additional nerdy stuff was written by Sandra Peter and Kyrene. We had help with bits and pieces from the entire SBI team and Megan's friends. If you're wondering about the music you're hearing right now, it's yet another one of the Bach-Goldberg variations, a public domain recording made possible via Kickstarter project and used by us because it's beautiful and, more importantly, free. If you want to know a little more about the underlying research behind each of our episodes or for a full nerd out, Our transcript and show notes are available at sbi.sydney.edu.au slash unlearn. The Unlearn Project is a production of Sydney Business Insights, an initiative of the University of Sydney Business School. You can follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and WeChat. You can subscribe, like or leave us a very positive rating wherever you get your podcasts.